listen to this message, you will be challenged and encouraged through God's Word. Here at Heartsease Family Life Church, it has always been our desire to see people's lives totally impacted and changed. His Word promises to accomplish that. For more information in regards to our church, you can call us at 225-274-1607 or visit us on the web at www.hflc.us. We look forward to hearing from you. Be blessed now as you listen to God's Word. what we're going to do tonight. We're going to read through the entire Easter story, looking at the various aspects of this incredible story. I mean, it is an absolute... I'm here today because of the Easter story. You know, what does Easter mean to me? It's life. I mean, without God and without His sacrifice and everything, I mean, it's the most incredible story that has ever been told. But here's the sad reality of it. There's so many aspects of the Easter story that we just overlook and we just skip over because we've become so familiar with it that we almost forget its true meaning and what it symbolizes and what it means to each one of us. And I'm tired of taking God for granted. I want just to experience God in a new way in my life, a new love, a new appreciation. I want to fall in love all over again with God and just to appreciate Him in every way. So tonight I want us to read together this story. And I want to ask you this, because this is what I asked myself when I read this story. What do I see? I want you to ask yourself as we're reading through this story, I mean, what do you see? There's things that you're going to see. There's points. There's maybe, you know, as I was reading, there were certain things that just jumped out of the page at me and just kind of hit me. And I was like, wow, that is incredible. And the things that perhaps I think are incredible are things that you may maybe skip over, but something else. So the challenge tonight is as we're reading through this story, I want you to ask yourself, what do I see? What do I see in this story? And this story actually is recorded in all four of the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. But the reference we're going to use tonight predominantly is from the book of Mark. So if you have your Bibles, you can turn to Mark chapter 14, and we're going to begin with verse 12. So the first part of the story that we're going to look at is the Last Supper, the upper room, as they were all gathered Together. So remember, as we're reading through this, asking yourself, what do I see? What is there to be seen in what I am reading? So let's begin, if we would, in verse, or verse 12 of chapter 14. We're going to read verse 12 through 17. It says this, Now on the first day of the unleavened bread, when they had killed the Passover lamb, his disciples said to him, Where do you want us to go and prepare that we may eat the Passover? And he sent out two of his disciples and he said to them, Go into the city and a man will meet you carrying a pitcher of water. Follow him. Wherever he goes in, say to the master of the house, The teacher says, Where is the guest room in which I may eat the Passover with my disciples? Then he will show you a large upper room furnished and prepared. There make ready for us. So his disciples went out and they came into the city and they found it just as he had said to them and they prepared the Passover. 
And in the evening, he came with the twelve. Now, here's the first thing that I, thought I saw. And if you're taking notes, you can follow along. But here's the first thing that I saw in the story. Begins in, we're now going to read in verse 18 through 21. And the first thing that I see in this story is love. Let's read and we'll see it. Now, as they sat and ate, Jesus said, Assuredly, I say to you, one of you who eats with me will betray me. And they began to be sorrowful, and they said to him, one to another, Is it I? And another said, Is it I? And he answered and said to them, It is one of the twelve who dips with me in the dish. The Son of Man indeed goes just as it was written of him. But woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been good for that man if he had never been born. What we just read of there is that Jesus is beginning the supper in the upper room. And he starts the supper with perhaps strange conversation. Not how's your day been today? But he looks at them and says, one of you here is going to be one who portrays me. But notice the action of Jesus. Jesus, see, here's what we understand. If we were there and we were one of the twelve, we would be saying like they did, is it I, is it I, is it I? Jesus wasn't asking a question to try and figure out people for the rest of the night. It wasn't like a suspense movie where we find out at the end who did it. Jesus already knew who it was when he said, one of you is going to betray me. But how did Jesus act to the twelve? Exactly the same. Isn't that incredible love that we see from the very beginning of this story? Because us in the natural, you know how we would do, we would kind of turn a, we would kind of be angry with that one if we knew. But the Bible says he loved or he took care of, he didn't let that change who he was. But yet he still loved. He knew, but he still loved. If I would back up just a little bit in this story. Mark doesn't talk of it in this way. But we see it in another account in John chapter 13. And there's another thing that I see in the story of Easter, and that is this, servanthood. What are you talking about, Pastor P? If you would read in John chapter 13, the Bible says that when they came into the upper room, Jesus took a towel and he took a bucket of water and he began to wash their feet. He began to wash each one of their feet. Because you see, washing was a custom of that day. Before they ate or when someone came into another person's house because of the dusty roads and just the nature of that day, they would come in and they would wash the feet. There would be a servant who would be washed or waiting to wash and prepare so that person could sit and eat. But in the story of Easter, we never read of a servant who was present. It was Jesus and his twelve. And you know what happened? Not one of those twelve offered to fulfill what was required. Not one of them offered to fulfill the duty of that day or the custom of that day. So what do I see in the story? I see a picture of servanthood as Jesus bent down and he began to Wash their feet. You see, they hadn't got the teaching. What did Jesus tell them? If you want to be the greatest of all, 
You've got to first be the servant of all. But they were jockeying for position. You know, do I see that in my life sometimes? Because you see, what I'm trying to show us tonight is not only what we see in the Easter story, but what do we see in our lives in comparison? Because the fact is, we're supposed to be Christ-like. We're supposed to be in the image. But how many times are we jockeying for position that we want this and want that? Oh, I don't want to clean the toilets. I don't want to do that. Come on, I want to be on the platform. I want to do all this. Jesus shut them all up real quick because I'm sure every one of them thought, man, I should have been doing that. I should have been the one. But it's too late after Jesus has already taken the towel. So as we continue to read on in the story, I want us to look at verse 22 through verse 31. And what I want us to read of in this is Jesus institutes the Lord's Supper. But I want you to see another chance that Jesus has given everyone, mankind, another opportunity. And as they were eating, Jesus took bread and he blessed it and he broke it and he gave it to them and said, Take, eat, this is my body. Then he took the cup and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them and they all drank from it. And he said to them, This is my blood. This is the new covenant. Another chance. You were dead by the law. This is a new covenant, the fulfillment to the law, that you can now have another chance that I shed this just for you. Verse 25, Assuredly, I say unto you, I will no longer drink of the fruit of the vine until the day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. And when they had sung a hymn, and they went out to the Mount of Olives. Verse 27, Then Jesus said to them, All of you will be made to stumble. Because of me this night. For it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. But after I have been raised, I will go before you into Galilee. And Peter said unto him, If all are made to stumble, yet I will not be. And Jesus said to him, Assuredly, I say unto you, that today, even this night, before the rooster crows thrice or twice, you will deny me three times. But he spoke more vehemently. If I have to die with you, I will not deny you. And they all said likewise. What do you mean, pastor, when you have read that passage, another chance? Jesus was showing every one of them, just like us today, that through his death and resurrection, there was grace that was available. Even as Peter, Jesus knew that he was going to deny him. But you know what? Jesus even still refused to write him off, but showed grace and mercy. Another chance. I'm glad today that I see in the Easter story, grace, another chance, another opportunity. Why? Because sin stole the first one from me. And I've blown many opportunities since then. But grace is not a second chance. Grace is another chance. Come on. So we see the grace of Jesus Christ. So we see now we have gone from the upper room and we are now moving into the garden, the next section of the Easter story. And as we begin to read in verse 32 through 34, let's read. It says this, Then they came to the place which was called Gethsemane, which means a place of crushing. Think about that. And he said to his disciples, Sit here a while and I pray. Sit here a while, I pray. And he took Peter, James, and John with him, and he began to be troubled 
and deeply distressed. Then he said to them, my soul is exceedingly sorrowful, even to death. Stay here and watch. Here's the first part out of the garden that jumps out to me. And you'll read this in the first part of verse 35. It says this, Then he went a little further. And he fell on the ground and he prayed that if it was possible that this hour might pass from him. What do you see? I see someone who was prepared to step out of the crowd. Someone who was prepared to go just a little bit further for each one of our lives. If you read through the accounts of the Gospels, the entire life of Christ up to that time and including this moment all testified to this. What do I mean? By his actions and his words, he lived to go a little bit further. What was the teaching that Jesus taught them? Jesus taught them in Matthew 5 verse 41 to go the extra mile, but his teaching was more than being compelled to do it. He was literally saying to him, it's time that we live in the extra. What do I see? I see that it's perhaps time that I step out and just go a little bit further. It's maybe time that I distance myself from the crowd, live in the extra mile, distance myself from those things that are perhaps holding me back. That's what I see in the Easter story. Maybe you see something different tonight. The second thing I see in the garden, we read of in verse 36, and it's a surrendered will. What did he say? And Jesus said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Take this cup away from me. Nevertheless, not what I will, but what you will. Jesus said, it's not what I want. It's not what I need but it's only that your will would be done. Wow, our lives would be totally changed if we could learn that type of surrender, giving to God. But God, I want that, and I want that, and I need this, and I want that. What do I see? I see a surrendered will, a will that was surrendered even unto death because he was prepared to follow the will of God. To the cross. Let's read on in verse 37 through verse 42. Then he came and he found them sleeping. And he said to Peter, remember Peter the one, God, no matter what, I'm there with you, I'm hanging with you, we're tight, come on, I don't care what everyone else does. Notice he's the first person that Jesus went to. Jesus said to Peter, Simon, are you sleeping? Could you not watch with me one hour? Watch and pray lest you enter into temptation. Here's the third part I see of the garden and that is this. Prevailing persistent prayer. Prevailing persistent prayer. The spirit is indeed willing but the flesh is weak. Again he went away and he prayed and he spoke the same words and when he returned he found them asleep again. For their eyes were heavy and they did not know what to answer him. Then he came a third time and said to them, Are you still sleeping and resting? It is enough. The hour has come. Behold, the Son of Man is being betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. 
See, my betrayer is at hand. I like how Jesus says in verse 41, he says, are you still sleeping and resting? You know why he probably said that? Because you know what it's like when someone calls you up and you're asleep and they say, are you sleeping? No, I'm just having a little rest. They probably used every excuse. Oh, I'm not sleeping, you know. I'm just, just closing my eyes and just giving them a little bit of a rest. But you know what I see? I see the need in every one of our lives to have a new realm of prevailing prayer. There's so many of us are falling asleep. Jesus, in that time of desperation, what did he do? He prayed. He sought God. He cried out to God. What did he say? We need to pray lest what? We'll fall into temptation. We need to pray. Luke chapter 22 and verse 44, you don't have to turn there, I've got it up on the screen for you. It it adds this part, it says, and being in agony, this is talking of Jesus, being in agony, that word agony literally means in a struggle, there was a struggle that was happening right there for humanity, do you understand that? Satan was trying everything within his power to say you don't have to do it, to taunt Jesus, to tempt Jesus, there was a struggle that was going on because Jesus had surrendered his will, now there's a prevailing prayer that's going on and being in agony, he prayed what? Half-heartedly, he prayed more earnestly. What's the first thing that happens when troubles come? We forget to pray. So many times. Or maybe we remember to pray when troubles come. But then we soon forget again. What do I see in the story? If Jesus needed to pray, how much more do we need to be praying? The Bible says that in the agony, in the prevail, in the struggle, that his sweat became like great drops of blood. That fell to the ground. Can you picture this? The agony of prayer and the struggle within him that his sweat turned to blood, that his blood vessels beneath the skin ruptured and burst because of the struggle, because of the anguish, because of the cry of desperation in the heart of God. But that did not deter him. He prayed more. And I love that. He prayed more. He prayed more. Got a sneaking suspicion that one of the things he prayed for was you. There's a song that says, When he was on the cross, I was on his mind. Someone said once, that's pretty arrogant to make a statement like that, that you would be on the mind of God. That's not arrogance. That's the scripture. That's the gospel message. It's a personal relationship. If you would have been the only one alive, he would have died for you. But that doesn't mean he did not think of you. He thought of you. He prayed for you. His prayer that night was, I've got to make it through because Daryl needs me. His prayer was, I've got to make it through because T's going to need me. Come on, I've got to make it through. Again, this is what I see. Maybe you're seeing something different, but there's a beautiful picture that we would see if we would just stop and look through as we are doing tonight. So we see the upper room. We see the garden. The next part of the story we're going to see or read about is his arrest as they come to get him. We're going to read of the betrayer, the one who portrayed Jesus. Verse 43 through 46, And immediately while he was still speaking, Judas, one of the twelve, with a great multitude, with swords and clubs, 
came from the chief priests and the scribes and the elders. Now his betrayer had given them a signal saying, Whomever I kiss, he is the one. Seize him and lead him away safely. As soon as he had come, immediately he went up to Jesus and he said to him, Rabbi, Rabbi, teacher, teacher. And he kissed him. Then they lay hands on him and they took him. It always amazes me that Jesus was betrayed by a kiss. A kiss. That someone close to him was able to make his way through the crowd and to meet or get before Jesus uncontested, to get so close to him that he was close enough to be able to kiss him. You know what I see? I see the desire that Jesus still has, even though we may wander away and even though we may let him down. Still, I believe Jesus embraced him knowing what was about to happen because he knew he was the one. Remember the love, the first thing we saw? He knew what was about to take place. But Jesus did not turn away from that kiss. I believe he looked Judas square in the eyes and still said, I love you. I love you. I love you. Next thing I see in the arrest is the compassion that yet still Jesus possessed inside of him. Because that's who he was. Let's read verse 47 through 49. And it says this, And one of those who stood by him drew his sword and he struck the servant of the high priest and he cut off his ear. Then Jesus answered and said to them, Have I come out against you? With swords and clubs, to, or have you come out against me as a robber with swords and clubs to take me? I was daily with you in the temple teaching, and you did not seize me, but the scriptures must be fulfilled. An ear was cut off, but yet Jesus, the compassionate one, the Bible says in Luke chapter 22 and verse 51, the account that when a, a disciple cut off, and I believe it was Peter maybe that cut off the ear of the priest, what did Jesus say to, or the servant of the priest, what did Jesus say to that servant? Ha! You deserve it! He missed! He should have taken your head off! What did Jesus say? Jesus said, permit me even this. Listen to the words. Permit me even this. As he reached out and he touched the ear and he healed the man. You know the image that I've had so many years is that the ear was laying on the floor. and Jesus bent down and picked it up and just kind of super glued it back on. Yeah, he healed it, but just kind of stuck it back. I don't believe that's what we see here. I believe that the ear was probably mangled and destroyed. And the Bible says that Jesus just touched him. And that ear grew back. Absolutely. What do you see? I see such compassion amidst such adversity. Such hatred. He's just been betrayed. But yet such compassion. What an incredible story this is. What an incredible saviour. He's still reaching out. He's still looking to make a change in someone's life. Knowing he was literally hours away. 
than being crucified. You know, one of the saddest things that I see in the arrest is what we read of in verse 50. And it says, And all left him. They all forsook him and fled. What do I see? He's forsaken. He's been betrayed. He's still full of compassion, but now he's forsaken. He's left all alone. The upper room, the garden of Gethsemane, the arrest, and now the judgment. Verse 53, and they led Jesus away to the high priests. And with him were assembled all the chief priests, the elders and the scribes. But Peter followed him at a distance, right into the courtyard of the high priest. And he sat with the servants and warned himself by the fire. The next thing that we're going to see is the false witness. Those that wrongly accuse him come with wrong accusation. To try and say that he blasphemed, that he called himself something that he wasn't. I think it's incredible that even when these people opened their mouths to lie, they couldn't even lie the same. They couldn't even get their lies straight. They contradicted each other. How do we know this? Because the Bible tells us, and it says, Now now the chief priests and all the council sought testimony against Jesus to put him to death, but they found none. For many bore fault witness against him, but their testimonies did not agree. Then some more rose up and bore false witness against him, saying, We heard him say, I will destroy this temple made with hands, and within three days I will build another temple without hands. But not even then did their testimonies agree. And then the high priest stood up in the midst and asked Jesus, saying, Do you answer nothing? What are these men testifying against you? But he kept silent and answered nothing. Again, the high priest asked him, saying to him, Are you the Christ, the Son of the blessed? And Jesus said, I am. And you will see me, the Son of Man, sitting at the right hand of the power and the coming with the clouds of heaven. Then the high priest tore his clothes and said, What further need do we have of witnesses. You have heard this blasphemer. What do you think? And they all condemned him to be deserving of death. Then some began to spit on him, and they blindfolded him, and they beat him, and said, Prophesy. And the officers struck him with the palms of their hands. Another account says, As they blindfolded him, they struck him and said, Tell us who hit you. They were making mockery of who he was. He had been wrongfully accused. That's what I see. False witnesses all around. But isn't it amazing that even when they opened their mouths to try and wrongfully condemn him, they could not even do that. You know what I saw in the story? I saw myself here have perhaps so many times I'm a false witness. I wrote a blog on this last week that I wonder how many of us are playing on the wrong team. 
working for the wrong cause. While we're here praying and we're seeking God for the church to be filled, I wonder how, of us, how many of us are driving people away from the church, falling out with people, having differences and wrongs. We're never going to get it all right. We're never going to agree on everything. But how many of us are emptying the church? Perhaps it would be better for us to ask ourselves, not how many people have I brought to the church through my witness, but how many do not come? You see, I began to see perhaps myself so many times as a false witness, not portraying the truth. I don't know what you see, but that's what I see. Beginning in verse 66, the next thing that I see in the judgment is this, that he's denied by his very own. Now as Peter was below in the courtyard, one of the servant girls of the high priest came and when she saw Peter warming himself, she looked at him and said, you were with that Jesus of Nazareth. But he denied it saying, I neither know or understand what you are saying. And he went out on the porch and a rooster crowed. And then a servant girl saw him again and began to say to those who stood by, this is one of them, but he denied it again. And a little later, those who stood by said to Peter again, surely you are one of them, for you are a Galilean, and your speech shows it. And he began to curse, and he began to swear. And he said, I do not know this man of whom you speak. A second time, the rooster crowed. Then Peter called to mind the words that Jesus had said to him. Before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. And he thought about it and he wept. This is the same Peter who boldly proclaimed, no matter what everyone else does, never me. Not me, Jesus. You can trust me to the end. I'm in it for life. I'm in it for the long haul. No matter what, I'm going to be in church. No matter what, I'm going to be paying my tithes. No matter what, I'm going to be the one that you can tell. I'm your go-to guy. If it's third down and long, I'm the receiver you throw to every time. I'm the safe hands. I'm going to make it happen. How many times have I denied him? That's what I saw. I didn't see Peter. I see myself in the story. How many times do I deny him? I'm not talking about standing up and saying, I don't believe in Jesus. How many times do I deny him by the actions of my life? By the thoughts of my life? By the words of my life? That's what I see here false witnesses. He's been denied. But what happens next? Let's begin in chapter 15 and verse 1. Immediately in the morning, the chief priest held a consultation with the elders and the scribes and the whole council, and they bound Jesus and they led him away and they delivered him to Pilate. Then Pilate asked him, are you the king of the Jews? And he answered and said to him, It is as you say. And the chief priests accused him of many things, but notice what it says. He answered them nothing. Then Pilate asked him again, saying, Do you not answer nothing? See how many things they testify 
against you. But Jesus still answered nothing, so that Pilate marveled. You know what I see? False witnesses. He's been denied, but now a ruler is marveling. That's what I see. Someone is amazed. Someone is confounded. They have never seen anything like this before. What a testimony. Wrongfully accused. And Pilate knows he's been wrongfully accused. But, by, but the Bible says Pilate marveled. Why? Because he had never seen this happen before. He had never seen someone stand before him in judgment that did not defend himself. And this was probably the first time he ever had someone stand before him who was completely innocent, but yet still did not try to defend himself. Why did he not, Why did he not defend himself? Because he had already surrendered his will. You know what I see? I see it's perhaps time that we just let go and let God fight our battles. I think it's time that we trust God, as Megan said, that sometimes we've got too much to say. That sometimes we talk ourselves out of a miracle. Maybe it's good that we shut our mouths, that people around would marvel at what? Not at us, but at the testimony that God's going to bring through our lives. The fourth part of the arrest situation or the judgment that I see is this. There's a choice. What do you mean a choice? Let's read it in verse 6. It says this, Now at the feast he was accustomed to releasing Pilate, one of the prisoners to them, whoever they requested. And there was not one named Barabbas who was chained with his fellow rebels. They had committed murder in their rebellion. The multitudes cried aloud and began to ask to do just as he had always done for them. But Pilate answered and said to them, Do you want me to release to you the king of the Jews? But he knew that the chief priest had handed him over because of envy. But the chief priest stirred up the crowd so that he should rather release Barabbas to them. Pilate answered and said to them, Why, What then do you want me to do with him who you call the king of the Jews? And they cried out again to him, Crucify him. Another account, they cry out and say, We have no other king save you, Caesar. That's what these people cried out. You see, there's a choice that in our lives we have to make. I see this in this story. I see it in my life. The choice that so often we cry out for the things that are so foreign, so crazy. Why would you want a murderer when you can have the Savior? You know what else they said in another account? Let his blood be upon us because Pilate washed his hands and says, I find no fault in this man. He is innocent. And what did they say? Let his blood be upon us and our children. You don't realize the choice you make today will affect your children also. Come on, I see choices that are so important. Well, I would never choose like that. We do. We do. What do you see in the Easter story? So they cried out again, crucify him. And Pilate said to them, verse 14, why, what evil has he done? Pilate's pleading with them for his life. But they cried out the more, crucify him, crucify him. So Pilate, wanting to gratify the crowd, released Barabbas to them. And he delivered Jesus 
after they had scourged him to be crucified. The last thing I see in the judgment is the horrific beating that Jesus went through. Mark doesn't go into great depth or detail, but what Jesus endured for each one of us is beyond imagination. Verse 16, then the soldiers led him away into the hold called Praetorium and they called together the whole garrison and they clothed him with purple and they twisted a crown of thorns and they put it on his head and they began to salute him and say, Hail King of the Jews! And they struck him on the head with a reed and they spat on him and, and bowing the knee they worshipped him and when they had mocked him they took the purple off him, put his own clothes on him and led him out to be crucified. You and I cannot even come close to envisioning the state his body must have been in after they had beaten him, scourged him. As they took that cat of nine tails that would literally wrap around the chest area and they would rip it off. Some people have written that when Jesus went to the cross, that his body was so mangled, his body was so ripped, that literally you could see his lungs and his organs and his ribs were exposed right there because of the ripped flesh that was completely in the muscles and the sinew. I think it's Josephus talks about his face that was almost twice the size. Swollen beyond recognition as it was beaten so many times that the the retention of the blood and just the swelling that took place. Thirty-nine stripes were laid upon him. Thirty-nine diseases. They tell us today there are recorded. Every lash, the beating, the answer for everything that we need. The innocent, the spotless lamb, beaten beyond recognition. What do you see in this story? I mean, maybe it's time we take another look. I know in between this part and other accounts, he's taken before Herod and Herod judges him and sends him back to Pilate. I know there are little things that are uh, uh, more detailed in other accounts, but what do you see in this story? What do you see? Almost finished tonight. The next part is we've gone from the upper room to the garden, to the arrest the judgment and the beating. And now we're going to look at the cross. The cross. The cross. You know the first thing I see of the cross, which is so incredible, you read it in verse 21, read it. Then they compelled a certain man, Simon, a Cyrenian, the father of Alexander and Rufus, And he was coming out of the country and passing by to bear his cross. The the thought is this, Jesus was so weak from the loss of blood and the beating that he was unable to take another step to carry the cross. 
that they drug someone out of the crowd. Can I tell you tonight that the person who was drug out of the crowd was not by chance, it was by divine appointment. Because a man who was black-skinned from northwestern Africa, because that's what a Syrian was, Simon was drug out. What do you see under the cross? You see a white flesh. You see black flesh. Do you know what I see in the cross? That every cultural difference, every race difference was united and brought together in the cross. It's not a white gospel. It's not a yellow gospel. It's not a black gospel. Come on. It's the gospel of life that unifies everything. What an incredible, so many times we can just look over this, oh yes, Simon, we've got to see what this means for our lives. What we see, what do I see then? The cross, John, is all inclusive. Everyone is welcome to be a part of it. Let's read on verse 22 through 28. And they brought into the place Golgotha which is translated the place of the skull. Some people believe that when David killed Goliath and he cut off his head, he took the head of Goliath and he buried the head of Goliath. Hasten, they named that the place of the skull, Golgotha, Golgoliath. That's what some people feel, that that was the place. And it was what? That David said, I'm going to take off your head. And what did Jesus do? Jesus took the head of Satan off when he died on the cross. He took Satan's head took it off. And they gave him wine mingled with myrrh to drink, and he did not take it. When they crucified him, they divided his garments, casting lots for them to determine what every man should take. Now it was the third hour, and they were crucifying him. And the inscription of his accusation was written above, the king of the Jews. With him they also crucified two robbers, one on his right and the other on his left. So the scripture was fulfilled, which says, and he was numbered with the transgressions. I mean, he's been through enough. I said he's been through enough. But you know what else I see? He now is mocked again. He's now ridiculed again. The thieves on the side are blaspheming him and cursing him. Or at least one is. What do they go on and say? Then all those, verse 29, who passed by, they blasphemed him, wagging their heads and saying, Aha, you who would destroy the temple and build it in three days, save yourself and come down from the cross. Likewise, the chief priests also mocking amongst themselves with the scribes said, He saved others. Himself he cannot save. Let the Christ, the King of Israel, descend now from the cross that we may see and believe even those who were crucified with him reviled him. If you are who you say you are, do something about it, they said. He can save others, but he cannot save himself. My dad used to sing a song that went like this. He could have called 10,000 angels. He could have called 10,000 angels at that moment. He could have showed the world who he was, but he didn't come to show the world who he was in that way. He came to die the spotless, perfect sacrifice. He chose to die alone for you and I. 
So what else do you see in the cross? Verse 33 through 37. Now when the sixth hour had come, there was darkness all over the, ha- the land until the ninth hour. And the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Elo, Elo, Lama, Sabathini, which is translated, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Some of those who stood by when they heard that he said, Look, he is calling for Elisha. And someone ran and filled a sponge of sour wine to put it on a reed and offer it to him to drink, saying, Let him alone. Let us see if Elijah will come and take him down. And Jesus cried with a loud voice, and he breathed his last. You know what I see? Man did not take his life. I said, man did not take his life. He gave his life. The Bible says he cried out with a loud voice. One of the first things that goes in your weakness is your voice. There was no weakness in that sense, in the fact of he struggled. There was a strength inside of him that still cried out, It is finished! I've come and I've accomplished that which I came to do. What do I see? A surrendered life, a life given. Man did not take his life. I love that part in the Passion of the Christ when they bring him up to that place to crucify him. You see Jesus crawl onto the cross. Man did not place him. He willfully laid himself upon that. He chose to breathe his last. Man never took that breath from him. He willingly died for you and I. What do I see next? I see the redemption of mankind because the Bible says in verse 38, then the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. The separating factor now was removed. Notice the veil wasn't torn from bottom to top because man did not do it. It was torn from top to bottom and it was the hand of God that made a way once again for the redemption of mankind. And the next thing we see in the cross, which is beautiful, is the confession. Verse 39, so when the centurion who stood opposite him saw that he cried out like this and he breathed his last, what did he say? Truly, this man was the Son of God. There were also women looking on from afar. Among them were Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, the less and of Joseph and Salome. And also followed him, the ministers to him, when he was in Galilee and many other women who came up with him to Jerusalem. Now when the evening had come, because it was the preparation day, that is the day before the Sabbath, Joseph of Arimathea, a prominent council member, who was himself waiting for the kingdom of God, coming and taking courage, went into Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Pilate Pilate marveled that he was already dead and summoned the centurion and asked if he had been dead for some time. But when he found out from the centurion, he granted the body to Joseph. Listen to me, here's another part of the story, and I apologize for going over a little bit tonight, but this is a good story. This is a good story that they went to break his legs because that's how they would kill someone on a cross because they would crucify him in such a way that they would have to push up to grab breath. They could not push up. They would literally suffocate themselves as their lungs would fill with fluid and they would suffocate to death. Horrific, painful death with crucifixion wasn't bad enough. So they would break the legs that they could no longer push up. When they came to break his legs, they realized he was already dead. And they stuck a spear in his side to check. 
You may say that doesn't mean much, but it does when you begin to read in the account of Psalms where it talks about not one bone of his body was broken, that they pierced him in the side. What these people didn't realize was they thought they were killing God. They were only confirming who he was. They were only confirming who he was. When they found out that he granted his body to Joseph, verse 36, then he brought him fine linen, took him down and wrapped him in the linen and they laid him in a tomb which had been hewed out of a rock and they rolled a stone against the door of the tomb and Mary Magdalene, the Mary of mother of Joseph, observed where he was laid. The last part of the story, we've got to just finish with this tonight. It's the resurrection. This is the most important part of the story because if we didn't have the resurrection, we would not have eternal life. It wasn't just his death, it was also his resurrection. What do we see in the resurrection? I'm telling you, this is what I see, hope for mankind and eternal life in him. Let me read quickly, if I would, verse 1 through 8. Now when the Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James and Salome, brought spices that they may come and anoint him. Very early in the morning, on the first day of the week, they came to the tomb when the sun had risen, and they said amongst themselves, who will roll away the stone from the door of the tomb for us? But when they looked up, they saw the stone had already been rolled away and it was very large. And entering the tomb, they saw a young man clothed in long white robes sitting on the right side and they were alarmed. But he said unto them, do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth who was crucified. He is risen. He is not here. See the place where they lay him. But go and tell his disciples and Peter. I love that. Go and tell the disciples and don't forget Peter. Aren't you glad? You know what I see? I see the fact that God is still looking out for the one. Go and tell the disciples and Peter. He was a disciple, I know that, but he betrayed Christ. Go and tell the disciples and Peter that he is going before you into Galilee. There you will see him. And he said to you, so they went out quickly and fled from the tomb for they trembled and were amazed and they said nothing to anyone for they were afraid. So many other accounts of the soldiers who were brought out and all these different things as they lied and told stories and that they snuck in and, uh, and they stole the body and, and all these things. But really, obviously what I would conclude with this tonight is this. There's so much that could have been told and there's so much more that you perhaps saw that I didn't see. There's so much more that together that we can see in this. But the real question tonight is, what's your Easter story? What do you see now as the result of what he did for you? What is it that you now see in your life? I asked you to fill out some thoughts on a card tonight. Who would like just to share with us? I know time is gone, but let's, let's have a few tonight. Who would like to read their story of what they see now as a result of what Jesus did for them? Is there anyone tonight? Abraham. Not going to bars, smoking, and getting to know Jesus. Come on. Awesome. Who was next? Come on, Mr. Dan. The resurrection codified all that Jesus said he would do at the Passover. And the Passover lamb was a price that was paid, and he paid the price for me, and he bought and paid for me the price that I could never pay. Who else has got a story, wants to share your story tonight? Anyone else? Come on, we should never be ashamed of our Easter story. Come on, we should never be ashamed of the testimony that we have in God. 
I wrote that I have a new beginning in the Lord because he died so that I could have the hope of living with him forever. Awesome. Dad? Easter means to me being redeemed from a lost and meaningless life, freedom from the bondage of alcohol and a prideful, self-centered life, victory over life's hurts and habits, and an invitation into the very presence of Lord God Almighty forever and ever. Awesome. Awesome. Who else has got a story? Come on, who wants to tell their story tonight? Victoria, you want to tell your story, sweetheart? Yeah. Oh, what Easter means to me is that I can see it, that I can see it and enjoy it now that I am four years clean. Because once upon a time, before before I had the stroke, I, I couldn't enjoy holidays and then because I was too loaded to. But now I'm not. And I thank God for this chance I have again. Amen. Come on, come on. Come on, who else has got an Easter story? Come on, come on. What do you see in Easter? Who else has got a story of Easter? Come on. Uh, when I was a kid, and most kids, you know how we received Easter, Easter baskets on Sunday morning. You know, my mom would put it out in different places, and that used to just be such an exciting thing. As a kid, you get this whole basket full of candy and how much excitement. But now I think about being saved and knowing that every day I wake up with the gift before me. Come on. Who else has got an Easter story? Come on. Who else has got a testimony of what God has done? Come on. Come on, Stacy. I love it. Easter means to me my children and I are alive and well, blessed more than I could have ever imagined. Awesome. Awesome. Patricia, come on. I didn't see you back down. Sorry. No, it's all right. Easter means to me the new beginning that Jesus gave me, a chance to embrace forgiveness and redemption, to let the old girl die, let the new Patricia be born again a new creature in Christ, now able to live life with God's guidance and love as one of his adopted children. Awesome. Fantastic. Who's got a story? Someone else? Someone was pointing over here, the cheap seats at the back. David, you ready to rock and roll? Um, I got an opportunity to travel and, and be in meetings with people from different religions and even in different foreign countries. And the thing that was so uh, unbelievable to me is that uh, in that experience that uh, we serve a risen Savior, and that's what most of the religions were missing, is that their future is not guaranteed, and our future is guaranteed by the death of Christ and his resurrection. Come on, every other religion has a full tomb. Ours is an empty tomb. Come on, ours is an empty tomb. They can go and worship the bones and the bodies and stuff. Ours is an empty tomb. Come on, anyone else got a story? Come on. Getting ready to close out. Anyone else got a story? How many people have got a story in here? Come on, let me see. Come on, how many have got a story of Easter? Because of Easter, what Jesus did. You see, one thing you and I have got to realize tonight is this. The Easter story did not end at his resurrection. That's where life just began. Why? Because I want you to see something today, and that is this. When you read the Easter story, I want you to see this, Melissa. It's your story. It's my story. Stacy, it's yours. Earl, it's yours. Megan, it's yours. Steve, it's yours. Dan, it's yours. Daryl. The Easter story is each one of our story. Why? Because we're a part of his story. And it's a story that continues to be written. It's a story that is continuing on, that every breath, every step, every day that we live, 
we are still continuing to write the greatest story that has ever been told. Because he lives, the Bible says, I can live also. We would like to thank you for listening to this message today. We pray that your life has been challenged by what you've heard, but we also know it will be changed as you put God's word into effect. At Heart Seas Family Life Church, our doors are always open to help. If you need any more information or just a friend to listen, we are here. Call us at 225-274-1607 or email us at pastorp at hflc.us. Remember, put God first in your life and everything you do will prosper. We look forward to seeing you soon. God bless.